The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing. Hey, everybody, this is David Pohl, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where we talk to operators, founders, entrepreneurs, and investors about all things value creation within early stage technology companies and startups. Today, I am with the honorary Bill Bench, who is an operating partner of Battery Ventures. Prior to being at Battery, Bill was the chief revenue officer at Pendo and the managing director of Marketo. Side note, Bill was the 17th employee at Marketo, helping to grow the revenue from zero to $250 million. Bill, how you doing? I'm good. I guess I'm honorary today. You're honorary. Is Bill, Bill Bench, that sounds like a, a judge's name. Yeah, it's kind of that alliteration, you know, Bill Bench. Yeah. I have to, I have to slow it down when I go to restaurants. Otherwise, they're like, <laughs> Bell Bench? What, what was your name? <laughs> um, awesome. Well, it's been really great to get to know you over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and thank you so much for coming on this podcast. You know, it, it's really interesting. Like you're kind of Phoenix's best kept secret. Yeah, I think I've heard that a couple times. You know, it's one of those things that I think there are actually more operators here than people know about, especially in the go-to-market world, because people like me, we look for uh, for consistency, for automation of getting in and out of airports. And as you know, Phoenix never fails because of weather. Maybe a mechanical or flight's delayed. But for those of us in sales roles that go out to events, go out to conferences, go out on sales calls and go to offices and things like that, this is a great place to kind of hide out. Yeah, it's a great place to live without a doubt. And now with remote work, I don't I see more and more people moving here. So you have probably the most coveted job of any retired or not retired, but any um, executive, C-level executive and or exited founder, which is being an operating partner for a firm. Can you explain a little bit about what that actually means with your engagement with Battery? Yeah, you bet. Um, So I have 28 years of experience. I went here to ASU when I finished. I moved back to the Bay Area and got my start in the tech business. And the first 15 years of my career were really focused on big billion-dollar software companies. So honed my chops, learned a lot, learned frameworks and how to operate and then I made, like a lot of people do, the jump into small businesses. And uh, I worked for three companies in the last really 14 years of my career. And the first one was a total abject failure. Uh, it was my year of learning, not of earning. And um, <laughs> I've had a lot of years of learning. It, well, it was good. Yeah, like I took a lot away from it. But nonetheless, I, I like you mentioned, I was fortunate. I, I joined Marketo early and um, went through the whole private to public to PE owned stage with that organization over almost a decade. And then made a leap to my next company, which was Pendo, where I, I went for three years. Um, both Pendo and Marketo were, were both invested in by Battery Ventures. So I'd formed a good relationship with the Battery team uh, about a decade ago. And as I came out of doing operating work and was trying to determine what was going to be next for me, Um, I started speaking with the battery team and that's where we conjured up this idea of an operating partner. And that idea or that role is not new inside of venture firms, but it was fairly new inside of battery. Um, And essentially 
to your direct question of what it is, is it's taking those frameworks and those skills and experiences that I developed over the 28 years of my career, and instead of applying it to one company and me going in and being a head of revenue or something like that, it's me applying it to a portfolio of companies. And so I get to go meet with incredible founders, CMOs, CROs, chief customer officers, really on the go-to-market side of the house is where my specialty is, and uh, work with them as they go through growth stages. And so you... Um you know, you have to have a catcher for your pitching, right? So you serve more as a mentor, a coach, an advisor to these companies. Yeah, that's right. Some, I mean, I can get as low as tactically helping them by doing interviews inside of their organizations for roles that they're looking for. Sometimes I'll review comp plans. Sometimes I'll, I'll review business plans and help them think about that. But really what I try to do is spur thoughts of how a seed series company goes to stage A and A goes to B and just helping them anticipate some of the obstacles and the blockers that they're probably going to meet along that road and help them be able to navigate that process. Okay. And so, I mean, what the appeal is, is obviously you are exposed to a ton of different companies and a ton of different people. And the, the grind of repetition is, is not necessarily B it's always, it's better to be a coach than the direct report, right. Or the person who receives direct reports. You know, I go back and forth on it. Actually. I, um, there's a part about owning it that, that feels really good. You know, it reminds me of, um, the founder and CEO of Marketo's name is Phil Fernandez and he's a huge mentor of mine. And I remember when I was talking to him about leaving operational business and going into this type of role he said, you know, Bill, there's a stage in probably everybody's career like yours that you take your hand off the steering wheel and you sit in the passenger seat or maybe even the back seat. You just got to make sure that you're ready for it because he said it can be frustrating. He said, because you can go and apply wisdom and experiences and share your ideas with companies and they might take absolutely zero of that <laughs> advice. You're like a consultant. They only get 30% of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I'm listening to 30% of what you'd say or like being a parent, right? A hundred percent. So, so <laughs> It's just like being a parent, you know, they don't listen to much, but your lips are moving. So, um, so it, it, there's pros of being in that type of role where there are, I think a lot of very self-aware founders today who realize that they're not an expert in all areas of product of, of G and a of marketing of sales. And so they're looking for outside help. And I, that feels really good about being able to go meet with those founders that are aware and haven't figured out the whole process. So that, that part feels good. But like you said, there's some downsides, like not owning it. There are time, like ends of quarters. I'm just so built after 28 years of being on a quota to to think about things in quarterly increments. Right. That, that that's still, I mean, I'm only six months in, so it's still an adjustment for me. Sure. And so when, you, when you're working with these companies and they're reporting to the board, I mean, like, did they give you like parameters or guidelines on how you're supposed to engage with them, what the boundaries are, you know, or do you just kind of use your own puck sense. Yeah. So it was really good coming in. Cause like I said, they'd never really formally had this type of role. So it was totally a blank slate from that perspective of where am I going to spend my time? And, um, across most venture firms, they have a very wide portfolio and, and battery ventures is no different. You know, we have seed series investments through ABC, through public companies, through ones that we've bought out from a private equity perspective. And so, um, the real initiative that they set me with was go try and touch a bunch of different things and figure out where you have the most impact. It could be a stage of a company. It could be a type of a software B2B apps versus infrastructure versus something else. 
Um, and go take your time to learn where you can really have an impact so that you can help shape this blank slate into something that's repetitive for the future. And uh, what what is, so I didn't realize the battery is doing seed stage. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. How much, how much are they doing in seed? Do you know? Um, there's not, we're stage agnostic. That's, that's the thing about battery. And so from that perspective, there's not like a dedicated portion that we do over there. There's just, um, there's seed companies that come along. The reason you probably don't know about them is because a lot of those, um, aren't ones that we, we put up on the website or something like that. Right. And you probably syndicate to diversify risk a little bit. Yeah. Sometimes we partner with others. Yeah, exactly. So, because it's, you know, I mean, a partner's time is very valuable and, you know, to spend a ton of time on doing board work on a seed stage company when you have, you know, these other bigger companies, you know, is not a great use of of time. So you're, you're at battery, you're, you're adding, you know, you're trying to add value. Um, you know, it's hard to take away from, you know, the, uh, the, the objectivity of trying to actually own the thing. Right. And, um, so what's it like when you're actually having to, uh, do you, I mean, you're sitting in board meetings with, with them at the time, like how, how what's your day to day look like you jump on calls? Like, is it like, do they need you? And then you come in like, because battery, they do oftentimes take majorities, don't they? Um, most of them are invested. Yeah, so we do have a whole side that does private equity, which is majority or, or owning the whole thing. Um, but it's a great question. Look, there's some investments that battery have that have got it figured out. They have a great team and they're succeeding and they probably don't really need my help or want my help because what they're doing is working. Um, and that's totally yeah, fair. Like, don't listen to me. You might mess anything up. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, like, like, <laughs> look, I've been in that position where, you know, I've been in successful companies and, you know, having outside people come in, you know, like if they had built up a good reputation, but if all of a sudden I was just introduced to them coldly, I'm not sure how I would have responded yeah, to it. Because so, investors are famous for pushing executives onto people. Yeah. So this is, that's fair. Um, but Again, where, you know, if you look at my background and like I said, you go off the last 15 years, it's really helping companies that are in early stages go through those initial growth stages. So there's clearly a wheelhouse of skill set that I have that applies there. So just naturally, regardless of what the technology is, I feel like I have a good fit for companies that are at their seed or A or B series because that that's a really fun stage. That's the part that I really enjoyed the most inside of the last couple of companies I worked in. So from what I do day to day is mostly spend time with portfolio companies. Um, I'm certainly interested in finding new companies that battery could invest in. So I do participate a little bit in that side. And then the creation of content has become um, a pretty, uh, a pretty good portion of what I do. So I I write blogs, as I mentioned to you earlier, I did a webinar today, um, speak at events and stuff like that, speak at kickoffs. And um, yeah, there's been a couple of board meetings that I've sat in as an observer just to look at the deck and listen to what they're doing and be able to give some ideas, hopefully provoke uh, a few thoughts that might help the company. Now, Battery is based out of Boston, right? Yes, correct. And, and so are, is that more of an East Coast kind of financial firm by nature and then uh, has morphed into having um, more partners that have a operational background? What would you say the general, the GP mix is as far as experience of builder versus financier it's um batteries almost 40 years old um offices in menlo park and san francisco and then new york and and boston sorry for the headquarters and then we have operations in london and tel aviv as well so pretty spread around the world from the perspective i definitely wouldn't I, i wouldn't cast them as an east coast organization as far as the makeup of the general partners there's a good mix there's former operators that have moved in to the financial side and have become true investors. And then there's people that are truly on the investment side, that that's their skill set, And they've built their reputations up by making really smart investments and helping guide those companies from a strategic perspective. 
Yeah. So, you know, everyone talks about the value add of having a former operator as, you know, an investor or leading the round sitting on the board. Do you ever see it where um, a finance, you know, somebody who's got an investing background has added value or different kinds of value? Like, have you ever seen kind of like the parallel between that? Yeah. The, I'm trying to make myself feel better. So yeah, yeah the, um, <laughs> a, a couple of the partners that I work with are, are, are from the finance side and um, they're impressive. Now, part of it's pattern matching that they've been doing this for 20 or 30 years. Correct. And so they've watched inside of companies things that work and don't work. So to say that they're not operators, you're right. They haven't turned the crank, but they've been around enough things to know better and be able to give good advice. And I honestly think that a lot of the the founders that are looking for investments and choosing those folks as to be on their board are looking for that. They're looking for the skill set, especially you know, battery is very thesis driven. So we tend to do a lot of research in areas and try to pick a great company in those areas and invest there. And so from that perspective, we're not, you know, as opportunistic as just searching for some company to invest in. We actually typically understand the area really, really well. And so from that perspective, um, if we understand the area that tends to come across in the process of us getting to know a potential investment and that's where I think those founders feel comfortable that not only will well, that's that- a big differentiator because mostly it's like, what do you do? And we know exactly what you do when you come in and you have a thesis for the space and yeah. where it's going. So yeah. yeah, that gives you a leg up day one. Well, so, you know, that, I mean, every, every venture firm has its niche that they focus on, whether it's stage or type of technology or what size they invest in and things like that. Um, and like I said, like, I think that that gives a lot of comfort to the investments that battery does that we understand the space. And then we have people that have been around for a good amount of time that have had some success to be able to help those companies go through those stages. And that's where, like I said, you know, my role is fairly new battery has, um, has some operating expertise in the recruiting side, um, so that we can help the companies that we invest in, be able to go find talent. We have, um, a team that's focused on marketing. So helping the companies build their PR and their brand, as far as things like that, we have a business development function. So that helps make connections with other like companies or partner companies, or maybe even help in them closing a big deal at another mm-hmm. company. Um, and then, like I said, I was the last piece of that puzzle to be added back about six months ago where they wanted somebody specifically from the go-to-market side. And as you look out the windshield, you could maybe see that there might be a day that, that Barry decides to expand that and add skill set and things like demand generation, um, product, uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. Eventually, they're not even need head of startup. You know, we just have <laughs> VCs incubating these great ideas. Yeah, no kidding. All the talent and money is going right there. No kidding. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And battery is considered a top decile, top tier performance. Um, how do you, when you think about like thematic investing internally, have you been there in that in those meetings <clears throat> where you're thinking about, um, you know, what are the trends coming up, and and you know, distilling what you know you guys as a group want to look for? Yeah, absolutely. The um, like I said, the thesis uh, of how they invest is typically ahead of finding the actual company. And so it could be, it could be geographic, you know, right now, David, it's very popular for, you know, go back five years ago and, and you could see the preponderance of investments were happening in San Francisco, Boston, New York, maybe Austin, Salt Lake. Um, So it could be a geographic thesis of there's some areas where there's a lot of good innovation coming out of it. It could be a specific space that, that the team is looking at. And so, yeah, as we look out the windshield, there's areas that people are interested in, in trying to think about that this is probably going to develop into a space and a space is what's important. I think in the investment world, because you, you want to be able to, you know, I'm no expert at the investing side, but I'll give you my, my opinion here is you want to be able to go and invest in something that's going to become a true space and that there's going to be other vendors in it. I mean, like 
if Coke was just Coke and there was no Pepsi, would that be a soda soda space? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, but uh, and so yeah, there's absolutely the the mindset of looking forward of where is the market moving to. Right. Okay. So now you're uh, you're working with these companies, and you know there's there's definitely some themes that we discussed prior to um, to this you know show. And you know I love to talk more about sales and marketing motions, but there's this big, real big buzzword going around right now that I think is super important to dive into, and um, especially as a I would call an OG when it comes to go to market, being an old Oracle sales guy. Yeah. Right. What was that like selling for Oracle? I, I imagine like Mad Men, cigarettes. Uh, conferences <laughs> is it kind of like that no it wasn't quite like that it was it was like getting an mba and selling yeah know? uh i mean to be at oracle in the 90s um hard place to work hard charging place you know a lot of people attribute it to you know you make you miss one quarter and you're out um and i'm not sure it was that hard but it wasn't far away from there and um so it was demanding but at the same time you learned a tremendous amount the I always use the term frameworks, but foundations for how to think about selling, which could be methodologies. When you move into management, they train you on how to be a leader and how to motivate and coach and and drive people. So um, pretty amazing experience. I spent about nine years at Oracle, the first, you know, the first nine years of my career. And that was with a bag, right? You just traveled and sold million dollar deals. No, no, no. I didn't actually. I um I started as an SDR, um, and this is ninety three, so pre internet. So it was mostly like inbound phone calls and outbound phone calls, and you were just trying to communicate verbally. Like that was your metaphor for being able to communicate. And then you'd follow up by sending collateral, which is you know <laughs> code speak for sending someone something in the mail. Yeah, like a pamphlet. Yeah, yeah. like like. Uh, like like white papers and stuff like that. So um, it's pretty interesting. And then I moved, like a lot of people do, that start their career into inside sales. Um, and my nine years at Oracle was 100% in the inside sales area. So I was always based out of an office somewhere and closing the transactional deals, which I think was really critical for, I, I think any person coming out of school and learning business, if you go into a transactional business, you learn it from clearly the bottoms up, but really the guts of a business because that's a that's a process driven business. It means that you have to understand how things flow through an organization because anything that's transactional means that it's repetitive. Anything that's repetitive is velocity, and you want the velocity as high as possible. And I think that was a really good basis. You know, when you talk about like the buzzword of PLG and product led growth, um, that was the fastest form of distribution. If you go back 25, 30 years ago as a telesales model, it was the lightest touch way. Um, and that's really what I think the difference of product led and sales led is, is um, there's a lot that you can say that it is and isn't. And so I don't want to simplify it too much. But if you think about the classic enterprise software selling motion, it's a sales led motion. You find a buyer, you qualify the buyer, you run a sales cycle, which involves probably doing demos, technical evaluations, you're building use cases, uh, you're you're building use cases and and ROIs for them. You're doing negotiations and you're closing it, and then you're implementing some kind of software. And that implementation can run anywhere from days to maybe even a year. And so that's the the classic kind of enterprise sales led motion, and that's what we've all been trained on in the software world. But in the last ten years or so, there's been this this you know increasingly more common distribution method of what they call product led, which is where the product does the selling. It means you go to a website, 
and you download the product and then you start using the product. And that could be a free version of the product. It could be a limited version of the product. It could be a whole bunch of things as far as how the product is considered. But um, that model is really, really taking foot inside the sales led motion because I think a lot of companies that have a sales led motion, they probably do a classic thing of segmenting who their buyer is, meaning, you know, high velocity buyers tend to be small business and big enterprise businesses tend to be slower, more enterprisey, complex sales cycles. And I think what those companies are trying to do now is look at some of these product-led concepts that have come into the market and say, do those apply to me? Because I'm a classic old sales-led type of software business. But are there some things I can do to learn from what these other companies that are doing on how they distribute their products? So that's how I kind of break it down is there's sales-led motions and there's product-led motions and then there's a combo of both. So is there like a world where there's no need for salespeople? You know, I, I've been asked that and it's it's funny. It's always on a podcast or, or a <laughs> webinar or something like that. Um, I mean, for certain things, sure. I mean, yeah. Dropbox. Yeah. You yeah. know, we, we've seen, we've seen just the self-service industry take over over the last 20 years where we're doing more and more things. And we all have the examples of the bank or the travel agent or the blockbuster video or something like that, where we're now handling all of our own self-service stuff. Um, so is there a day? Sure. For certain things for enterprise software. Sure. There's certain softwares that you never engage with the vendor. I mean, I think we do that every day, you know, other than going into the app, there's things that, you know, I've never, I don't think reached out to Facebook support or something. like that. I don't that. think Facebook has support. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I mean. <laughs> I mean. It's such a shitty product. So, well, I mean like that's what, that's what you got like Gmail. Like I don't think I've ever, I've had, yeah. ever had to communicate with somebody in right. Gmail about the product it just works and I download it and I'm using it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yes and no, I mean, there's always going to be things that are complex enough that we need to have somebody that helps guide us through that process. Yeah. So help me with this because I always struggle with this and this way of thinking, and it might just because I'm talking about two different things. But when I think of product-led growth, I think of products like Slack, where they offer a premium, um, you know, uh, uh, really functional application product. Uh, In in this case, uh, team collaboration, they get their friends on it, right? And then all of a sudden there's a paywall with, you know, advanced features that they go and they have this bottoms up kind of um championing of <clears throat> that's a word championing of the of the product to the upper level, you know, uh leadership in order to actually pull out their credit card and to buy it. But then there's also I see and I I think of that as product led growth because you have a bunch of disparate users you know, basically all, you know, collaborating and adopting a product in a, in a very, you know, sequential way. Whereas, you know, I look at more of like freemium as, you know, this is going to be more for like one-off businesses. So how do you, how do you think about, about that? And, and is there a difference? I, I'm, I'm not purporting to be the expert in the definitions of these areas, but I agree with you on your concept of Slack. I think it's a very bottoms up motion and I think it spreads virally. Mm-hmm. Um, is I think that's your sequentialness is that other people see somebody using it and say, I want a piece of that. How do I get it? And they go and download the the product. And then they're part of that community or of that user base that somebody can do. Um, freemium, the, this is where, like I said, so a, a lot of companies have had a freemium version of their product uh, out in the market. And, and I'd submit that there's some similarities between that and what we just talked about with Slack and that PLG motion where someone's coming into the product and downloading it and getting usage of it. And then they're inviting others to it. Now 
Uh, Slack might've started off with more individual type of based people and Hey David, you know, let's communicate this way as opposed to text or something like that. But um, that same behavior I think happens inside of organizations. And I think a lot of times it happens from using free software. So um, like I said, you know, PLG, it's a big, big, well, the term's simple, but it, it encompasses a big term of free, freemium, trial software, product-led software, friction-free, frictionless. Mm-hmm. I've, heard, I've heard a million different names for it. And like I said, like, I, don't, I don't purport to be an expert at it, but what I, what I see happening out there, as I mentioned, is a lot of companies that didn't start with a product-led motion that have been around for 10, 12, 30 years that have always had a sales-led motion are looking at their product you know, really being introspective and trying to decide, is this something I can distribute in a way that is is more easily done and reduce what I'd call the friction points of buying software? Um, because we all know anybody that's bought software has gone in and filled out a form on a website and then been contacted by an SDR. The SDR qualifies them. Then they set up a meeting with the sales rep and the next day or whatever, you get on with the sales rep and the sales rep qualifies you again, asks you probably some of the same questions you got to ask, probably takes you a little bit deeper. And then they arrange a demo of the software. That's kind of the traditional enterprise software model right there. Um, But that there's a lot there. I mean, think about that. I go to a website and I just clicked, I just clicked uh, to fill out a form that initiates probably an hour to two hours of my work. Time. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I got to go through that first qualification, got to get the second qualification, got to get the demo. Then I'm going to ask for pricing. I'm going to ask for some business case or some justification things that I get. It's a couple hours worth of work. And like I said, is there a way that you can take some of those softwares that have traditionally been distributed that way and make it easier for the buyer, like essentially meeting the buyer where they want to be? Okay. No, I, I like that. And then what about the old adage? Um, and I don't know if this is more of a, a dinosaur way of thinking, but Someone's really not going to value the product unless you put a price tag on it. Um, that's, you know, it's interesting because I was trained that way. Um, at Oracle in the 90s, the the whole mindset was, even for a $10,000 deal, something that wasn't considered like an enterprise big deal, was, um, you know, it was always this like bizarre kind of like exchange, which is like, well, how much is it? And so, well, how much you got? Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was just this like, it's a hundred thousand dollars yes. for the implementation. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and you never wanted to answer that question until you understood a little bit about their business and could apply the value that your software could create for that buyer, for that right. customer. Um, and so there was always that awkward dance right. that really seemed to occur. Um, and I was trained that way. And so, you know, I've, I've kind of had to break myself of that and challenge myself a little bit because certainly like, look at the end of the day, if you go back 20 years before the cloud revolution, you know, kind of took over 20, 25 years, we used to ship a CD to somebody and the cost of manufacturing that CD was a buck. Right. Mm-hmm. But what was on that software was the intellectual property that, you know, hundreds or thousands of developers had written and you sold it in a licensing format based on the kind of impact it would have on that buyer's business. It wasn't based on the cost of the software or a cost plus basis. It was based on the fact that I qualified you, understand your business problems. And here, we're going to do- You're going to get value. Yeah, we're going to, there's an exchange here. I'm going to give you something. You're going to give me something called money back to be able to deliver it. And so, you know, I, I like I do challenge myself on that because there's certainly an element that says that, um, that- that giving the price away um, diminishes the value. But at the same time, you also see 
a lot of really great companies out there going to like a consumption basing based pricing out there. So it's not even like a user base. It used to be like, David, how many seats you have inside your saw inside your company? Oh, I have 50 seats. Okay. Well, it's this much per seat. And now it's based on how much computing cycles or units that you're computing that you're using as a customer. And your pricing is based around that. And there's a lot of logic with that idea, which says like, you're not going to pay for more than you're using, but at the same time, you know, if you over, if you overreach of what your expectation was, you're going to pay for that. Uh, yeah, right. And that, that could be, you know, I guess a TAM and, you know, you know, incremental TAM increase or, or decrease depending on, you know, how much you really know about your customer. Correct. And, and how much they're using. Um, so, you know, I guess the, the opposite, so making a frictionless sales process, I believe is what the consumer wants. I don't want to talk to a salesperson almost never. Right. Um, so having some type of, you know, uh, scenario where I'm going through a motion through a product makes a ton of sense to me. Uh, as an operator though, um, salespeople and, uh, SDRs are less expensive than developers because you would think a product led growth. I mean, there's no MVPs at that point, right? These are some pretty deep feature rich products, which requires more capital, more dilution. How do you think about that? I go back to the uh, a phrase I use of meeting the buyer where they're at. I, um, you know, one of the one of the benefits of working for uh, Marketo for almost a decade was I got to work alongside and meet a lot of some of the world's best marketers that that were uh, around at the time and still are around. And um, I learned a lot. You know, I wouldn't I would never claim raise my hand that I'm a marketer. Um, I'd say that I'm much more of a, a revenue or a salesperson, but. I, I do believe in that idea of meeting the buyer where they're at. And I, and I think that it's really interesting. If you look at a lot of sites right now, like websites, which is normally a very early stage in the learning cycle of a buyer, that you go to them. And some of them are what I'd call two-dimensional. You go there and you got the normal navigation of here's my product, here are the solutions I offer, here's about the company, here's the pricing, that type of stuff. And I can go and choose my own adventure and determine how I want to learn about your product. But there's not a lot of value that the the organization that has that website derives from that experience because number one, you're anonymous. And number two, they're not helping teach you how to buy their product. So you're off doing your own thing. And so then you think about the next call to action is aside from being on the website, you always see a button up in the corner that says, get a demo or try us, right? right? Or talk to sales. And you click on that. And that, like I said, jumps you immediately up to this thing of 90 minutes of my time commitment and so it went from minutes on the website to 90 minutes. And that's where I think some, there's like other. There's a bridge there that yeah, you can do. There's, yeah. a, there's a middle ground. And that's where like, you know, having, uh, I've seen obviously fully usable versions of your product on the web. Now to get that, you probably have to go in there and convert and give them your name and your contact information to get that. That's the give get. But yeah, now, you got to get an email. Right. Yeah. But now they're watching you use the product from the inside out, right? It's like looking through a two-way mirror. They're watching you and seeing, oh, did you just download it to download it? Or are you actually using it inside your business and inputting data and building integrations and things like that? So there's that step or that bridge, as you said. Um, I've seen tours on the website so that when you get to the website, instead of you self-directing your own tour, they say, do you want to learn about our product? And that could be through a video or it could be a That's series what Pendo of steps. did, didn't it? Yeah, Pendo did a little bit. Like, and Pendo is in what, what some would call the, the user analytics or the digital adoption space. And mm-hmm. Pendo would help guide your experience 
to make an ideal customer experience happen for you. So um, 100%. So you could go to a website and be guided through the process with tool tips and pop-ups and things like that that you could choose to go through, or you could choose to click away and just go through your own thing. But like I said, that's that's how I think about that whole process of meeting your customer where they are, because I just think that buyers are savvy. We all know that buyers go to our websites and are probably more educated by the time they hit our website than they certainly used to be. They, they probably know that. And at Marketo, we used to say that was the shift that the, it's gone from the seller being in control to the buyer being in control. And that's what really, I think, probably shook my mindset, David, the most about your question about, you know, is giving the price, giving away the goodies too soon. Well, the reality is I think people can do enough research very quickly mm-hmm. to go and learn that anyway. Yeah. So if you're, you're re- not the only guy, yeah. you know, that's yeah. selling marketing automation, right? Totally, totally. Yeah. And so I think transparency became... You know, if you think about 2009, 2010, transparency, I mean, think about this. If you go to, go to any any one of those websites that lets you look at old versions of websites, like Wayback Time Machine, and go look into companies that had sites up in 05 and 06, there's no pricing on those websites. No. That was giving away the goodies. And then it became this like edgy idea. Like, I'm going to throw the pricing up on my right. website and you're going to be like, wow, like like these guys show me everything. I know where the starting point is. I trust them. Yeah. yeah it, it did build trust. <laughs> right. it, it worked. Right. No, absolutely. So if I'm a, I'm a SaaS founder, I've got an SDR AE model, you know, and I'm listening to this podcast, I've got a million dollars of revenue. I'm trying to, you know, I've raised a couple million bucks. What would be the steps I would need to take to start testing a PLG type strategy? And how would you think about that with uh, a strategy that's currently, you know, working, you know, early stages of go to market fit? Yeah. Um, it's a, the answer is a product first answer is, the first thing you need to do is is work with the product team to make sure that your product can be consumed by somebody with no one around you. And that's one of the dangers of enterprisey type of softwares is that, you know, left to their own devices, someone will go off road and go to a, a not a happy place. And that's where like you brought up Pendo. Pendo's goal was to help create that that cycle, that that experience for the buyer to be shaped so that they were successful in using your software. Um, so from that perspective, I think it starts with the product. You have to make sure that your product can be consumable by the user in a way that they're going to see success because certainly you don't want someone to download your product, go get into it and hit a dead end or hit something where they walk right. away from you it. paid for that lead. Yeah, you did. So that's the first place you have to go to. But, um, outside of that, you know, a company that's thinking about, you know, growing to a million dollars or at a million dollars and thinking about growing there, um, I first of all wouldn't throw out what was working. If you got there with a million bucks with the sales led, I'd lean into that. You know, mm-hmm. at a million dollars, what I'd really think about there is how can I make that cycle predictable? And I define predictable as when you start the beginning of the month, can you predict what you're going to close the end of the month with as far as bookings go within a pretty tight window, five, 10%. And if you can, I'd argue you have a predictable business. You have a lather, rinse, and repeat type of business. So I'd first of all lean into that before at a million bucks. Right. I'd lean into getting yeah, that right. There, yeah, there's a little hanging fruit there. Yeah, that's where I'd go first. And so where do you where, when do you think about different strategies? Um, there's a lot of different strategies you can think about. There's the first one that um, most early companies start thinking about is moving from a one for all and all for one sales model, where just any like you know your customers pick you mm-hmm. and they come inbound and like. David, the rep, you get the rep and you get the deal in Michigan as well as the one in Florida. You get the one in the 20 person company and the 2000 person company. So the first things you start thinking about are obviously like geographic focus, uh, segmentation focus of size of the buyer um, so that your sales cycle can become consistent because it's really hard every day to wake up as a sales rep and sell 10K deals and then sell 500K deals. 
it's hard to get your mind wrapped around in context, you know, switch between a six month sales cycle and something that's 30 days. So I think a couple of the first places you go to are segmentation and geographic type of things to, to get you kicked off, to get that, like I said, that lather, rinse and repeat motion built out. And so what about PLG though? So, I mean, is that more applicable towards earlier stage companies that don't have a baked out go-to-market strategy, or is that something when the go-to-market strategy kind of has a diminished return if you put more gas on it? Do you think about PLG as more of a top of the funnel motion? I think, I think more and more companies that are starting up now, and especially have started up in the last few years, have thought about that from the onset of the company. They're mm-hmm. thinking about <clears throat> this product is probably going to be sold through both um, uh, you know, just a frictionless. Yeah, because they have to design the product to meet that. They have to design right. the product to do it. The question is, is for companies, like I said, the ones that are 5, 10, 30 years old that didn't get designed in this time frame with that mindset and they're having to retrofit. And that's where I said the first place you start is with the product. Whether you're starting a new company or retrofitting an older company, you start with getting the product right so that it can be consumed in that type of manner. Awesome. Awesome. And so I want to talk a little bit about the consumption model. Do you see that being more driven by the market or for by the companies trying to increase TAM? It's uh, a good question. It's early. Um, so I'm not sure I have a real crisp perspective on, on what the exact driver is. I think the idea there, you know, in the software business, it was always like, I'm going to try and sell you as big a deal as I can. And, you know, the customer would be like, why are you selling me a 747 when all I needed was a 737? Mm -hmm. Because I'm giving you a really good deal. Right. It's the end of my (laughs) quarter. (laughs) So I'm going to try and get this deal done and and jam it in. Um, And, and, you know, I think one of the things that SaaS did was it allowed you to deploy more easily. You didn't have to go do the big upfront spend and negotiate the big deal. Instead, you said, look, I'm going to go buy based on, you know, how many employees. If I'm buying a seat-based software... I'm probably not going to, you know, I mean, like I'm, I might buy 10 or 20 seats ahead because I know I've got a hiring plan that's going to meet that in the next couple of months, but I'm not going to buy hundreds of seats ahead. I'm just going to add as I go. And, and that's where I think it started. The consumption model, like I said, is, um, you know, if you, if, and I'm just learning about this myself. So if, if you read the same things that I am, the idea behind it is number one, you're not just licensing all this capacity to a customer that, that doesn't get used. And then a year from now or two years from now, when you go do the renewal, they come back and say, well, we bought X, but we're using X minus 20%, 30%. So we want to rene- renegotiate the agreement. Instead, it's more looking at from what's the usage you're going to actually uh, consume. And based on that, let's build in you know what your deal is going to look like. And now let's build some increments so that when you go above that, you know in a predictable way how much it's going to cost you, but you're not going to pay for that until you actually start using it. So it might not necessarily be compute, right? It could be because some things might not have a lot of compute. Maybe it's just like a CRM where it's just essentially a a database with the front end, right? So, I mean, then you would find some other type of metric to measure maybe number of contacts in your CRM. Yeah. Typically it's, it's finding ways to meter your product from, I mean, and then there could be a lot of different ways. It it truly could be computing. That's probably not a great way because most of the companies that are building SaaS products are dependent on some kind of hosting platform like Amazon Web or Google Cloud. Sure. And those have a cost associated with it. And so I don't think you want to build your pricing based on a cost plus type of model. I think you want to build it on, again, the value that you provide to your customers. And so from that perspective, I think um, the the whole usage or consumption model, like I said, is fairly new. And I'm trying to get my head wrapped around it because I'm seeing more and more companies at least explore the idea of doing it. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's right. You know, um, 
definitely an evolution. So I want to talk a little bit about um, your experience with this because I know you have a lot of experience doing this as well as um, as advising on this. There's a there's a period you know around I see it around one to two million right of revenue where you know they look for that proverbial unicorn, the VP of sales, right, and they want to pull themselves out of doing the founder led sales and they want to bring in a hot shot, right? So, you know, somebody that really, you know, sales are slow, right? They're not, they should be, they have good retention, but there's just something missing, right? Um, what, how would you go about telling or coaching a founder on finding a VP of sales? Oh, I got to think on that one. Um, I asked the hard question. Uh, there's, there's just yeah. a lot of angles to it. Um, uh, and I'm trying to work off your thesis. Uh, and, 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 and think about like the guy that's not a, maybe it's a technical co-founder. Right. right. Or somebody that was very product driven and, you know, was able to sell, but he was selling to early adopters, right. That wanted to buy something from a CEO or a founder and they had industry experience. Yeah. So like, we're trying to get this to be a little bit more repeatable, a bit more scalable, but you have to make it, you have to, you have to take a chance on a leader. Look, that's, that's exactly it. I, I'll, I'll give you a couple thoughts. I'm not sure there's a perfect answer to your question, but I'll try my best. I think that, um, the, the first thing when you're coming off maybe like the CEO or the co-founders that have been running the sales organization, you're looking for that repeatability, um, you're going to do a couple things. You're going to look for probably somebody that's been a builder. And what I mean by that is, you know, I made this change out of big billion dollar companies and went into my first small business. And that was my first unsuccessful one. Um, and maybe that was attributable partially to me because I didn't know how to operate in the dynamic environment that a small business is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that, that CEO took a chance on me by saying, I think this person comes in with some skills that are applicable to our business and that will work on creating repeatability. But I also need that person to be able to downshift and just go get a damn deal done. Yeah. Go sell. Yeah. Yeah. Get, yeah, get on a plane, sell this yeah. deal or save this client. Yeah. So, um, so I think the first thing that you tend to look for when you're doing that is, is a builder, someone that's probably done that motion before. Now I'll caveat, caveat this by saying that this is one of my great frustrations is that um, I get frustrated when I meet with a founder who says, I want the guy or the gal. Right. And then they build the box. And you know, like I sit there and just shake my head at it because they're like, I want the person that took us, took a company from one to 25 that they've done international, that they do direct and indirect. They do small business and right. big business, yeah. B2B and yeah. B2C. And, and we're going to pay them 125. Yeah. And you're yeah. like, you're, you're like, <laughs> you're like, like you like said, the proverbial unicorn VP right. of sales. And you're like, wait a second. Um, so my advice was your question. Mm-hmm. My advice to be, to a founder would be optimized for one or two things that you really, yeah. really want. There's only a channel or two that you can do well at that stage. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking at segments and direct versus indirect and all these other things, I'm clearly like, hopefully you're going to hire somebody that's shown some successive success in their career. Meaning, you know, they went from one role to another and showed that I was successful at transitioning. Maybe it was from an independent, independent uh, individual contributor to a manager, manager to a second level manager. You want to see some of that success. So the advice I'd give to a founder at a million or 2 million bucks is, is like, you know, tell me about the next 24, 36 months inside your business and what that looks like. And then let's optimize around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I'd give them is be deliberate, be intentional. Um, and this is quite, quite, you know, this is fairly a shout out to my CEO from Marketo. Um, I remember, uh, a stage of Marketo's growth in 2009. We'd only been in market about a year and a half. In fact, it was Thanksgiving of 2009 
And I went over to London to go meet with some potential candidates to run and open up a, a European office. I met with some partners. I met with a few customers over there just to assess the demand of, of putting us over there. And I came back from the trip all excited that we were going to go do an expansion. And my CEO asked me, he said, do you think we're ready? And as the growth guy, my answer was kind of naturally predisposed to be yes. I just spent a week of my life over there meeting with all these people. Right. I want this to happen. He said, well, let me ask you a question, Bill. Do you do we own a market segment in the U.S.? And I was like, no. And he's like, yeah. He's like, whether it's an industry or like a small business or mid-market, he goes, I just feel like like Europe right now is the tail of the dog. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're missing the dog. And so that goes back to being deliberate and being intentional. Obviously, as a smaller, younger, less mature company, you want to grow. And you think about all those levers, like going international and bringing new yeah. products I to had market. this one channel partner that brought me a deal. We need a channel strategy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's the same thing. Um, and and I'd say, you know, be deliberate. And, you know, like my CEO from my last company, Pendo, he was really good about this. He used to look at things in terms of experiments. And the way that, that he roughly defined an experiment was, if we can produce a million dollars of revenue from this in one year then that's probably worthy of something that we invest in. If after one year we haven't produced the million dollars, that experiment probably didn't succeed. So it's time to shut that down. So I'm sorry, I'm off the top. No. And then, and then, you know, and then figure out the expense structure to get that million dollars. Then you have like a cost of failure. Are we willing to risk 500,000 to make a million, right? Where the outcome could be a loss of 500,000. Yeah. And, you know, I'll I'll tell you the, the market environment right now, you know, I look at like the money that Marketo raised in, um, and it's, you know, it's first round, it's A, B, C round. And uh, to get through the the C round, I think it was a grand total of $20 million. And that's some, like, there's some seed rounds that are six, seven, eight million dollars <laughs> today. Or, yeah, that's ridiculous. And so yeah. you think about going through three rounds, a seed level round of a company, and we'd raise 20 million bucks. So I, I'd argue that today the market dynamics are such that the money is even though cost of things have gone up real estate cost of talent for sure have gone mm-hmm. up it's not as much as no, the, not, the funding yeah, does not scale does not scale to that so, so uh, you know i i would give most ceos the um the confidence to try and experiment with things again so long as they're being deliberate right like don't go like like it's not like a roulette table where i pace place some bets on red some on black some on evens you know some on specific numbers they have to be deliberate, but like you can afford to be a little bit more experimental today. Sure. And then um, how would a founder or a CEO know how to measure somebody of this caliber? Because essentially we're, this might be the stage where the founder is really hiring their first, you know, quote unquote, like leadership that's taking ownership of, of a unit. They presumably know more than the founder, right? They're salespeople. They can talk. Their job is to get you to like them. Right. So how does, how can you like, how would you coach a CEO or a founder to, to measure a VP of sales and to know when something's not working and, you know, it's not going to be just another quarter and things are going to turn around. Yeah. Um, a little bit goes back into the advice I'd give. Um, I'd optimize for a few things. And one thing for sure I would optimize is that at the end of a month, end of a quarter, that that sales leader you hired can put the red boots, put the red cape on and fly into the burning building and close the damn deal. Right. right? Because that's what you hired him to do. As a CEO, you're saying, I've got marketing, I've got product, I've got fundraising, I've got all these other things to think about. I need to be able to delegate down this function. Yeah. And you're right, as that founding CEO, you, you've forgotten more about the company and the product at that stage than that head of sales will know. So you've got to impart that as quickly as you can. 
sales. Yeah, they need to be able to, get, to, to finish the end of the sales cycle. Yeah. So I, I think the first thing that, that I would tell a, uh, a CEO that's brought on new head of sales is I'd make sure that that person was really, really skilled at being able and going and get the job done or going and rescuing the customer that's in a little bit of trouble. That's also uh, pretty synonymous with, with, I think, one of the roles that typically happens in sales. Um, so I'd look for that. The other thing I do is, uh, you know, I'm a big person on expectations. I, I'd qualify that person before they came in. I'd want to understand, you know, I ask this question a lot in interviews, David. I ask, you know, if you were on a desert island and you could only have three dashboards, what would those three dashboards tell you? What would be the three things you'd want to see? And it tells me a lot about the leader. You know, if they come in, they say, hey, I want to see pipeline, deals close. I know that that's a deal leader. If they say something like, hey, I want to see uh, uh, customer NPS. I want to see what our renewals look like. I know that that's probably a higher level leader. That's someone's thinking about the overall business. Product-led guy. Maybe product-led, but um, you know, the, neither answer is wrong. It just is a different mindset of of what I think that leader. So when I was in the process of hiring that person, I'd want to understand, you know, at the end of the day that number one, they can get the deal done. Number two, that um, I'd really be measuring that person on having forward looking indicators. I'm just a big believer of that. Like looking at pipeline closed deals tells you what you did in the last quarter in a traditional enterprise world. I want to be able to see, I want to be able to see that this person is thinking about how we build the business, how we hire reps, how we onboard those reps, how we get them successful in closing deals, build up their confidence, get those deals over to customer success, which gets that team experience with our product. They feed that feedback up to the product team who says, oh, customers are asking for this. That's great. Let's go and build some new features, new functions, new products. Now, so as a person who's been an executive, who's walked in to companies that, you know, maybe had needed acceleration in sales, right? Or, um, you know, that, you know, now you're walking in from an operational perspective at Battery. What is the realistic amount of time that a CEO should give a sales leader to present them a budget? So let me make sure I understand this. So what time, what, what, how much time should they give the sales leader until they present the budget to them? Yes. Or like a forecast, a budget, what they think they can do. Oh, got it. Okay. I was saying budget. Because a lot of times- I wasn't thinking about like expenses. I'm thinking about just- No, no, no. No, sometimes you walk into a pre-done plan and and the the team's just like, go. Yeah. (laughs) And so you didn't get a lot. Like, I I guarantee you, there's a lot of of sales leaders that'll listen to this will be smiling right now and be like, yeah, that was me. That's never happened. I I walked in in February and the plan was done back in December. So I didn't sign Uh, off on the plan. um, From the forecast, look, you, you, you probably have a quarter- of getting in there. And I mean, like I've heard of a lot of situations where a sales leader gets in just looks at the forecast and says, this is just totally rubbish. Right. Um, and in a way that's a good move because it shows they have some courage. It shows that they're inspecting the business and just saying like, look, we just don't have a process that supports whatever we're thinking we're going to do. It's hard to do though. It's mm-hmm. really hard to look at you because you, you know, we're, we're pleasers, right? You know, you want to go in there and you just hired me to, to make the number. Now I'm telling you, we're going to miss the number, but the reality is in that first quarter, you know, that's your honeymoon period. And it's, I think, pretty safe to be able to think that I'm going to come in and assess the business and have a point of view of the things that are working and the things that aren't working. The second quarter, if you come back and remember, like the sales leader is responsible for setting expectations, mm-hmm. right? Um, whether it's at quota, above quota, or below the plan quota, you're there setting the expectations. So from that perspective, from that perspective, I think that um, that person walking into the second quarter, you own it at that point. So if you had two bad quarters of coming in and, and giving a forecast and missing it at that point, 
any leader is going to kind of question and, and, and fairly so ask you what's going on. You right. know, you've been here long enough that you understand the people, you understand our product, you understand what a sales cycle looks like. What's going on that we can't be predictable about this. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and just to add to that, you know, I'll caveat it with, let's say you sell products that are a million dollars and really long sales cycles, like a year long sales cycle. You probably have to give that person a little more time because they sure. walked in in the middle of a sales cycle. And because you closed one, was it because they walked in? I'm sure they contributed, but you know, you probably did a heck of a lot of work leading up to that. So from that perspective, if the length of the sales cycle is really long, it's probably a longer runway that you give that person. But if you walk into something that's, you know, a reasonable product, you've sold a bunch of it, like you said, you're a million, two million bucks, you maybe have a thirty or forty thousand dollar average contract value, then at that case, you should have probably been able to get your arms around that business in that first quarter and really start stretching your legs, so to speak, in the second quarter. And so now that we're talking about just predictability, and this is my last question, we could literally do this for hours, but I, I you know, I, I want to be respectful of your time. But why do startup founders often get their forecast wrong? Um, startup founders a lot of times will will do it because if you look at the preponderance of the the backgrounds of the founders today, a lot of them come out of product side or the development side and essentially the R and D and the engineering side of the house. And so they're not used to understanding what a buying cycle and a selling cycle looks like. Um, and think about anything. I, I mean, David it's tough selling today. I mean, you have all of these things like GDPR and SOC two that your software has to clear. And there's so, a gazillion products out there. There are, there are. So aside from just differentiating your product and selling the value I mean, honestly, like I think most companies do this today because I certainly did. I would look at see what our selling cycle looked like and I would look at what the buying cycle of the customer looked like because some companies you get into and you enter procurement, you enter legal, you enter info security and they each take a slice of the pie. You know, like they each take a few weeks or a month to be able to vet your product because they've got a lot on their plate. And so all of a sudden you, you sold the product in a month and it took three months to close the deal because you had to go through this lengthy procurement process to get your software on the approved list and actually negotiate a contract. And so from that perspective, why do they get it wrong? They're not used to that. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's hard. And not only that, um, uh, you know, selling still hard. Like I I would love to have said that every time I left a company and went to another one, I was better. I probably was better, but it didn't mean the world got easier. No, You know, I mean, software advances, the buyers get more savvy. The competition is sharp. There's a million different things. And so I'd go in there and sure, I'd miss deals sometimes. And, you know, I'd take all my skill and be like, wow, I, I try to, ret- in retrospect, you know, kind of look back on the deal and figure out where we missed. But even I'd miss, you know, some some deals for sure and some forecasts for sure. So for somebody that doesn't come from the selling world, very easy for them to get in and not understand what the buying cycle looks like. Um, and also very easy for them to not ask all the questions that they probably should have asked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really understand. I mean, like a classic thing is people talk about single threading or multi-threading inside of accounts. Like the challenger sale is essentially built upon this. It says something like the average enterprise software sale now takes like 6.6 people to touch your deal Mm -hmm. before it gets bought. And so sometimes people go in, they're working with their champion and their champion's great, has all the passion in the world, but they have no juice. Right. Zero. The organization. No authority. Yeah. No po. We call it no no powers. You know, (laughs) Uh, so that person has got no power to get the deal done. No Uh, po. I love it. So there's, there's a million different reasons why uh, a founder might miss a forecast, but I think the probably most common one is um, a smart founder will realize what their strengths are 
and what areas they need to have augmentation around and they'll hire people that are pros to come in and do that. And back to your first question or, or your last question about that, it doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and it never stays the same. Like I, I get asked all the time, Hey, what was the model for you with AEs versus account managers? You know, people that hunt versus people that go in and expand. And the answer was not simple because it changed every year. Sure. I, I guess the answer was simple. It's like, there is no stock answer. Right. It depends on the stage of your company, what you sell, who you sell to, who the buyer is, a whole bunch of different factors, I think, influence that that answer. And uh, the reality was, is every time we would get it, we would always look to optimize it. Or if we didn't get it, you'd look to fix it. Mm-hmm. So you're always changing your model. And so asking that question of something like, you know, why do they miss their forecast? There's a number of factors that influence it. Sure. And bonus question, right? Uh, what's the typical ACV that you need to have if you have a six to one year sales cycle? Um, six month, again, a nuanced question. It's got to be in the high five figures is the short answer for mm-hmm. the land to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the nuance to it is, do you expand that? Um, because a lot of companies are built on that model where they maybe sell something 50 to 80 to a hundred thousand bucks is the initial deal. But then in the next 12 months, they go and expand it to hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars right. of sales. So, um, you know, you, you, we all use the term is the juice worth the squeeze. Right. And it's one of the first things I do when I talk with a company is if they want to break down their business for me, I'll say, tell me what your average sales cycle is. Tell me what your average sale price is. And then tell me about segmentation. Tell me about how much your business is new versus expansion, you know, 50, 50, 60, 40, 70, 30, whatever it is, that type of stuff. Um, I think I mentioned, help me walk through your segmentation. What are the, what are the high, you know, high velocity, lower price deals? What does that ASP and that average sales cycle look like compared to the enterprise side? And that just gives me some telemetry around a business to understand how they operate so that I can start being able to advise them on something like that. Because if you see somebody that has, a 20 K deal that takes six months to get done. That's where you really got to scratch your head and say like, like product market fits going to be a real issue here. Cause the product might fit the market, but they don't want to pay for it. Yeah. yeah. No one's going to, if someone only pay 20 grand for something after six months, that's a, that's a lot of money to spend on that cycle. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Bill, for coming on again. This is the capital stack, uh, where we talk to entrepreneurs, founders, tech investors about all things, value creation and startups. Uh, If you like this podcast, please share it, refer it to a friend, rate it, write a review. You can find us on all major podcasting apps. Uh, Just search my name, David Paul, or look at the Capital Stack, and uh, we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Ball is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.